BNC Leadership Podcast. And uh, we are so glad to be um, hearing and reading the the stories you guys have posted about the contest we have of the leader's journey. And we're still going through it, so we're going to choose the, the top five winners for next week. We'll announce it in the episode next week. I hope you really enjoyed that episode with Adam Mabry. I super did. Even though listening to it again, I can totally hear the... Uh, my allergies and my congestion, and you should have seen me when I was recording. I had uh, a tissue packet, <laughs> so I'm taking a lot of heavy antihistamines right now to be able to sound this, and I still sound congested, I think, but not as bad as last week. And I wanted to take this episode to go a little bit deeper there, and I feel like a lot of you were saying, or some people messaged me, and they said they really appreciated the episode, and major biten. And I want to say a few things before I get into what I'm going to talk about for this thing. As much as I would love to go chapter by chapter on Adam's book, as much as I would love to um, go deeper into it and discuss it at length in this thing, I feel like it would be a disservice both to the book that Adam wrote and to you, the, the people who could potentially just read the book instead. And here's why. I can't think, I was browsing the chapters again, I can't think of a simpler, clearer way to put it than the way he did. And what you're going to get from me is a, is a mess, a, a tumble of things. And so I, I highly, strongly recommend read the book, Stop Taking Sides by Adam Avery. And, and here's why this is important. And I want to talk about this uh, before we get to how we can stop ourselves from taking sides. I want to talk about some methods there. But... This is important for three reasons, at least, that I can think of. Number one, taking sides limits our options. It limits our options. And if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you know we don't like false dichotomies here. False dichotomies are a very oppressive way of controlling people. It's pretending to offer them choice, but really there aren't choices. In fact, the choices are predetermined, and that's why we say it's either this or this. And if you don't side with either one of them, then there's something wrong with you. That's terrible. That's controlling. That's oppression. That is not right. And so forcing people to take sides or, or not stopping to ask, hey, wait a minute, why, why am I even having to choose between both these things? If there's a check in your spirit, if there's a problem that you're, you're convicted about it, and you're like, wait a minute, this can't be the right choices then you should pay attention to that. Taking sides limits our options. You know, we've been talking about family systems theory and leading in anxious times. And one of the, uh, one of the uh, you know, main proponents of this theory, Edwin Friedman, and I think I've said this story in an earlier episode, he um, would often, he, he, he had a mentor, and he said this mentor of his would often remind him, you're not limited to just two options. So very often he would have a counseling case and he would feel stuck. He would feel like, well, what am I supposed to do now? You know, I can't, ex I can't go one way. I can't go the other way. The person wouldn't be happy. So I'm stuck. And he would call his mentor. He would go to his mentor and he would say, I can do this, but that has a bad result. Or I could do this and that has a bad result. And then his mentor would say, yes, you could do that. Or you could do that. Or you could stand on a chair and sing the national anthem. And that was his mentor's way of pointing out, you don't have to do those two things. You could do a third thing. You could do none of them. 
And that's the problem with taking sides. It limits our options and forces us to do something we, we probably don't really want to do. That's, that's why we have a check inside about it. The other thing is when that happens, taking sides can often cause more harm than good. Because we feel like we're choosing between the lesser of two evils, but why does it have to be evil in the first place? Now, yes, there are times that the Bible is clear about that, and we said that in the, in the episode last week where Adam did say that there are times where the Bible is clear, but like the quote we said, those aren't as often as we think. And in doing that, we're causing more harm than good because, number three, taking sides diminishes our view of God. And that's the problem with, with taking sides where God isn't drawing a line. When we draw lines and feel like lines have been drawn, that we have drawn our, our biblical or, or God-level stuff, where God didn't draw that line, that is not right. We're diminishing our view of God. And, you know, because we become what we worship, you diminish your view of God, you diminish yourself. We have to acknowledge that God is beyond us, that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. This is not a, a resignation to, min, to mystery and to say, ah, well, I'll never find out. We can. He is knowable, but he is still so far from us. Just because we know a little bit about him or a lot about him, that doesn't mean we know everything. In fact, Christian theology is full of these kinds of uh, teachings and truths we can't take sides on. And to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, and to think about our faith requires us to wrestle with these things. And that's what produces that wrestling, that work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, causing us to hold on to things, produces Christian character in us, produces transformation. One God, three persons. How can that be? Hold on to both. And the more you meditate on it, the better it will be for our relationship with God. What about Jesus, fully God, fully human? Hold on to both. In fact, I believe this is why many Christian thinkers throughout history and even until now have, have developed strong contributions to their fields because being a Christian requires them <laughs> to hold on to, to two different ideas and find a way to reconcile them. On the other hand, you can think about where the church has made abuses, where the church has done wrong things, and it's because we overly simplify, in many cases, we overly simplify a tension that God is called, causing us to maintain, not to resolve. In other words, taking sides reduces our view of God, and that reduces our own living out of our faith as well. And so that's the problem with it. And before I get to the, the, the methods that... that, that that I've come up here with today, we have to remember that Adam's point in the book is that God's word is written for us to know God and in the process to become like him, producing virtue, producing a way of living in our lives. I put it this way, God's word is for our transformation, not just for our information. Nowadays, you see so many people using God's word for information claiming the moral high ground by whatever verse they can cast. But that is not the way to use God's word. Yes, eventually, but our transformation first. And here's one part of the book I will refer to. In the very beginning, um, Adam talks about this, that we are all called to virtue. And he has this diagram. And so imagine with me a circle, 
a circle and the circumference, the, the, the line you know, making the circle, is divided into four equal parts. So there's a circle with four equal parts, and in the center is a smaller circle, which is virtue. And we are all, Adam says, on this circle. And the parts of the circle are on le from left to right, open and closed, and from top to bottom, judging and intuiting. And he says, all of us have a natural tendency to one or two of these extremes. We're more open, that we want to include more people, or we're more closed, in that we want to exclude more people. It's just the reality. Um, and some of us are more judging, that we think things through, we're critical thinkers, and we reason, and we care about the facts. And some of us are more intuiting, which is feeling and sensing things through. And what he says is, all of these are great starting positions, but they are not the equivalent to Christian virtue. Christian virtue calls us to lean in a different way and to appreciate, yes, how we are naturally wired by God, but also to let God and His nature and His Word and His Spirit challenge the parts of us that need to be challenged. What are these things that need to be challenged for the people who are more closed, who like to exclude, like, like me, you know, I'm more like, well, are you a valid member of this thing? Do you really belong in this thing? Yes, that's good in some cases. But in the road to Christian virtue, in the road to Christ-likeness, I need to practice more listening. I need to listen more and not close things to people or close people off to things right away. For the people who are more open, they might say, yeah, you need to listen more. You don't listen enough. Yes, that's true. And it's good that they listen. But that's not enough either. For those people, they need clarity. Because too much openness, too much love, everybody, just love people. It doesn't matter what God you worship, just show love. That lacks clarity. What do you mean by show love? What is love? What's your definition of love? I can already hear some of you saying, don't hurt me. Baby, don't hurt me. No more. Anyway. For those who are into it, who feel things through, that's valid. That's good. We've talked about that in this podcast. Your feelings are valid. But those people, in order to get to Christian virtue, to Christ-likeness, need to learn more argumentation. Not arguing to, to create conflict or division, but the careful articulation of truth, as Adam defines it in his book. That you don't just feel God's word, you know God's word, because our feelings can change. And for the people who tend to uh, lean towards judging. This is where I am. So closed and judging. Uh, relying on facts, relying on thesis statements, we need to learn to embrace the mystery of God as well. Just because we know some theology, this doesn't mean we know all of it. And see, the point of all of these things is our transformation. You've got some good points. You've got some great natural tendencies. That's not enough. God wants your transformation as well. And so when we read that book of Adams and when we're faced with, with false dichotomies, remember, remember, it's for your transformation. God presents these things for us to be transformed to be like Jesus. So as I get to the next part, I wanted to lay that foundation of it's for our transformation. For this podcast, I want to talk about how to avoid being pushed into a side or being forced to take a side. 
when you sense, when you detect that, wait a minute, this is not sitting right with my convictions. This is not what God would have me say. I feel like I'm being caught between two terrible choices. I don't want to take a side. How do you avoid being pushed into a side? And I'm uh, basing most of this from looking at Jesus. Because when we read the Gospels and Jesus, we see that there were so many, so many instances where he was being forced to take a side and people wanted to either push him away or co-opt his ministry and his influence for their agenda. And that happened so many times and Jesus brilliantly, amazingly um, found a way to stay faithful to God, faithful to his mission, and connected to people as God called him to do. And that's the key for us. How do we avoid being pushed or forced into taking a side? Number one, reframe the conversation. Reframe the conversation. R-E-F-R-A-M-E. What is reframe? I want to quote this book called uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety by a person named Steve Cuss, who I've been following on Twitter this whole pandemic. He's an amazing uh, person. But here's what he, how, he, how he defines it. Reframing right-sizes someone's anxiety by inviting the person to see the situation in a more nuanced, more accurate way. Reframing is a difficult balance because it can feel like manipulation. But the best reframing is offered to someone out of care. It doesn't dismiss his or her fear. It just more accurately captures the situation. Reframe it. And again, we're talking about false dichotomies. You can sense it. You can feel it. Wait, this isn't right. I'm being forced into two things that, 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 that are not from God. I, I don't like either of them. Reframe it. There's one time in the Bible where Jesus is confronted and he's asked, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? How does Jesus respond? He asks for a coin. And then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Notice this, and there's a lot of theological discussion we can get into about the, the significance of that statement and, and the, the, the importance of why he asked for the coin. But I want to point out that he doesn't mention the word taxes. He reframes the conversation. Their question was, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? He doesn't say, yes, it's right. No, it's wrong to pay taxes. He reframes it. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. See, words matter. Words matter. And as Christian leaders and as Christians generally, we need to be aware of the words that we use and the words that are being pushed on us. Very often, we are more versed in the words, the phrases, the, the sound bites, the hashtags of the world rather than that of God. And that's why we end up falling into these false dichotomies. That's why we end up into causing more division or more pain and not being biblical because we're thinking with the world's terms, with the world's um, tools and not with God's. I've seen Christians forwarding hashtags that are just on the surface blatantly wrong, violent, dishonoring, unchristian. And when you talk to them about it, they'll say, well, I didn't mean that. I meant this. Well, if you meant the other thing, say the other thing. Why would you let your words be lose its value by mean, saying something you don't mean? Let me give an example. You know, with uh, 
pandemic, there's a lot of outcry in nations in different parts of the world. But, you know, we were in the U.S. for a long time and now in the Philippines. And there's a big discussion about whether or not Christians, uh, uh, is it wrong for Christians to participate in protests? And we've said it several times here on ENC Leaders, on ENC.ph, that no, it's not automatically wrong for Christians to protest, but the manner in which we do that, the heart where it springs from, that's what determines whether we're Christian or not. And also, some people could have a strong conviction not to protest, and that's between them and God as well. But during that whole discussion, there was an article that was shared, that was forwarded um, by by you know, a number of people, even Christian leaders, and it was Jesus was a protester. And that's over and over again what this person is saying. Jesus was a protester. Jesus was a protester. And, um, I mean, that's the most repeated line, maybe 20 times, you know, in the whole article, the person says it. You know, he says, uh, uh, Jesus took his message to the masses, speaking and advocating wherever he could and created a movement based on justice and hope and love. Because Jesus was a protester. Jesus garnered fame from the oppressed and notoriety from those in power because Jesus was a protester. And the definition this person uses for being a protester is, you know, how they're saying it here. And I had my concerns with this article and I, I, had, I had discussions about it with, with my wife, with other people, uh, friends and, and family and, and people from church. And while I agree with the points he's making that Jesus did win favor with the oppressed, that he did uh, get on the bad side of those who were oppressing those people. I don't like the word Jesus was a protester because he wasn't a protester. And we went back and forth about it, but he means it this way. But I said, yeah, but other people say protester another way. And now that's just confusing. What kind of protester do you mean? And the main reason why I don't like that point is simply this. Kings don't protest. Jesus is our king. He was establishing his kingdom on earth. Kings don't protest evil kings. He was leading a revolution. I would rather they said he was a revolutionary. That, I would believe, is a more accurate statement of Jesus. Words matter. Reframe the conversation. Don't be trapped in the choices people give you. Reframe it. Let me give another example from Jesus. Matthew 19, 3-6. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's the trap. What are you going to say? No or yes? Then they would have reasons either way he went. He answered, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And so they say, okay, so we're not supposed to divorce because No, then he continues down that verse where because of sinfulness, Moses allowed for divorce and even Jesus grants for the possibility of divorce in that verse. But I like that he reframed the conversation. They started with the law of Moses. Can I divorce or not? And he said, wait, wait, why are we starting there? Let's go back further. Let's go back to the very beginning where God started marriage and what was his original intent with that. See, when people force us to choose, they are arbitrarily choosing start points and end points for the argument. 
you can step back and be like, okay, okay, let, yes, that's valid. This piece you've shown me is valid, but let's broaden it a little bit more. Is this all there is? And like uh, uh, Steve Kras said, this is done out of care, not to show someone up. I got to apply this earlier today. I was talking to a young man who is torn between uh, the challenges that he's facing with his personal life and his work. And he was at the place where should I choose between prioritizing my personal life or my work? And the way he presented it was, it's a choice. It's either this or this. Should I do what my work says and drop everything? Or should I do what my family says and drop you know the work? And first, showed compassion, understood. I felt that same tension. And I shared with him the reframing that helps me. I can't choose between those two things. I need to do both. So whatever answer we're going to come up with, we'll need to incorporate both. So now, and you could tell this was what was giving him anxiety, the extreme position of no more work, just family, no more family, just work, that's what was giving him anxiety. And we could remove those two extreme positions from the table because that's not what we're being asked to do, is it? At that, our conversation progressed, and you could even feel over the phone the weight lift off of him because he realized he wasn't stuck between those two choices alone. Reframe the conversation. Next, how do we avoid being pushed into a, a false dichotomy? Connected to reframe, but I, I want to highlight this. Redefine. Redefine the terms. Redefine the terms. What does that mean, redefine the terms? It means... Don't let other people's definitions of words automatically be yours. Think about those definitions. If you want to use them, go ahead. But you don't have to. You don't have to. You can take what they've said and, and, and look at the premise of it. See, often people will give you a, a, a statement, but the premise is automatically wrong. That's what I was talking about with Jesus was a protester. Okay, what do you mean by protester? Before I answer the question, do you agree Jesus was a protester? What do you mean? You can clarify that. Here's an example of Jesus um, redefining the terms of engagement and addressing the premises that were given to him. Because very often the premise, the starting statement is already weighted against you. Matthew 22, 23-29. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So there you know. They, know, they believe there's no resurrection. So now they're trying to trap him with a question about the resurrection to point out that the resurrection makes no sense. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, and then here's their hypothetical situation. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. They all were married to her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he proceeds to ex explain to them. And I'm not going to get into the theology of that. But let's stop. Think about it. I'm going to give you a few seconds to think. What was the wrong premise in the art in the statement or the question put forward by the Sadducees? Okay, okay, enough. You can just pause. But 
here's the wrong premise that they would give and be given in marriage even in the resurrection the way it was on earth that was their assumption so they're like okay we well you know the resurrection means just like earth so it's gonna be the same way that doesn't make sense if they're married and she's married to other people so this can't possibly just be the truth and jesus proceeds to explain no that's not true where did that come from and see when you're forced to choose between two hard things ask yourself why are these choices too hard what is the wrong premise here and very often we, we get stuck with that. And we, when we encounter God's word and we have tension with it, then again, it's because we're starting with the wrong premise. I had a conversation like this today with another young person. This person was a student and uh, he was studying Philippians chapter 2. And if you're listening to this, so proud of you <laughs> for doing that. And he, he texted me and he said, okay, I'm reading this. And it says, put other in person's interests first. Consider other people's interests first. Now, how am I supposed to do that if they have competing interests? How am I supposed to grant two competing interests to each other? He's having a hard time. Either I don't put their interests first and disobey the Bible, or I put their interests first and somehow irritate them both because I'm giving them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving, I'm, I can't fulfill competing interests. What's the wrong premise? Boss, if you need to think about it. Here it comes. The wrong premise is that just because you're putting other in, uh, you're considering other people's interests, that you need to give them what they want. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse isn't saying give everybody else what they want. No, it means consider what's best for them. And the example of Jesus is the best one there. He considers what's best for us, but he doesn't give us what we want all the time. Because out of his love for us, he knows he's not supposed to do that. So you can still put your, your, their interests first without having to give them what they want out of love. There's so many examples of this. Um, people saying, oh, you, you know, how, how can I vote as a Christian? I don't like voting for that Christian person. I disagree with him. Well, where in the Bible does it say you're supposed to vote for a Christian? That's not true. Or what about this statement? How can Christianity be true when I just saw blank living hypocritically? Maybe it's someone they know or, or, or someone who's famous for their faith online, regardless of how true it is or not. And they say, oh, he was a hypocrite, so nothing is true. Um, the false premise is, why is that person the standard? Redefine the terms of engagement to sure footing. Reframe the conversation. Redefine the terms. What terms are you talking about? Here's the third way to avoid being pushed into a false dichotomy, into a false choice. Refrain from negative engagement. Refrain from negative engagement. Whoever said you have to comment? Whoever said you have to, to come up with something right there? John chapter 8, verse 5 to 7. This is the time that they tested Jesus again. They uh, brought a woman caught in adultery before him. And they said, she was caught in adultery. The law says to stone her. Let's stone her. Verse 5, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have something, some charge to bring against him. How does he, Jesus respond? Jesus bent down and wrote this finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I love this part. And 
you know, what happens is the people, for some reason, are, are convicted by this, and they let her go. And then the crowd dissipates, and the woman is left there before Jesus, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. There was this serious charge against her, not just moral charge, but legally in those days, and that melted away with a simple response by Jesus, and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's, there's different theories people have about why they were convicted by this. You know, it's possible that um, Jesus paused and noticed, wait a minute, if she was caught in adultery, because they said in the act of adultery, where's the man? This is terrible sexism and favoritism if the man's not part of the judgment. Like, he should be a part of this as well because the law you know, gave equal judgment to, to both of them for that crime. The fact that he wasn't in on it means this is a, a rigged case. The other thing that people theorize about is that in writing on the ground, with writing with his finger, what did he write that convicted them? You know, I've heard people say that maybe he wrote the Ten Commandments and every one of them realized that they were all guilty. What I want to point out, though, for this topic, Jesus was put in a, in a difficult position. Either participate in the mob justice and see this woman killed or let her go and be accused of not prioritizing the word of God. And I love the part where they say, the law says this, so what do you say? And he doesn't answer. He bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Why? I don't know. I really don't know. But, you know, one possible theory is he stopped to think. You know? I don't know what's going on here. And he's getting more information. Now, some people might object to that. that isn't he God? Yeah, but, you know, there's different schools of thought about that theologically. But the Bible does say he emptied himself. And I, that's what I believe, that every supernatural thing we see Jesus doing was because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we as believers who aren't God, who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, can do what he was doing. So knowing that he didn't have perfect knowledge, he stopped to think. Maybe to pray, I don't know. I think many Christians, I know I would, would fail this test. That if people went up to me and said, so what do you say? I would want to say something now. And that's a trap. You don't always have to say something. Refrain from negative engagement. Are these people after healthy engagement or are they after a soundbite? Obviously, social media is one big area where this happens, isn't it? don't always need to have your say. I, I know that temptation. I'll see tweets or posts by people that I really want to rip into. Sometimes it's because I'm annoyed. Or sometimes it's because my insecurity got triggered. Sometimes it just looks funny and I feel like I could really give them a zinger and hurt their feelings. And I pray and I say, Lord, I'm sorry. That's not what my social media is for. Not every issue requires your comment. Not every issue requires your position on it. And that's not just true in social media. That's true in relationships. You know, that's my problem. Um, if, if you think of our relationship, uh, my relationship with my wife, imagine like a basketball player who's playing defense and every time the shoot, the person shooting fakes, they jump so far and they get so out of position. That's me. Everything I jump at, you know, every temptation, everything I will need to correct, any miss. Um, 
uh, statement of a Bible verse or theology. Uh, uh, actually, actually, Lavi, I mean, gosh, you, my poor wife <laughs> for having to put up with me. So gracious and so full of faith to believe that I can change. And I've had to learn that not everything needs to be engaged. Not every offense needs to be talked about. You can ignore the offer. All right, you be that way. I'm not going to take part in this now. I'm not going to play this game. Refrain from negative engagement. How do we avoid being forced to take a side? Reframe the conversation. Redefine the terms. Refrain from negative engagement. Number three, remember who you are. See, that one, one other problem with false dichotomies is they have a tendency to reduce your entire personhood to whatever your position is on a controversial issue. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're going through, what you're feeling. Are you pro or anti? Are you left or right? That's it. And if you're a believer, if you're a believer, that cannot be your primary identity. You have to remember who you are. You have to remember um, your allegiance. You have to remember who God made you to be. It's, it's a joke, but yeah, very often Christian denominations are like this. You know, we're more loyal to our denomination or to our local church than to other uh, believers. No, we are loyal to Christ. That's why when we, when we wrote this podcast, yes, it's written from an every nation standpoint and mission and values, but we, we, we make sure to be clear that, okay, some of you are not from every nation and we're happy you're listening. You're welcome to be here and you're welcome to take what's helpful for you and to discard it because we are more, it's more important that I am your spiritual brother in Christ than I am a member of Victory and you're a member of whatever church you're from. We're Christian first. You're Christian first more than your political party. Let me read this quote from Adam's uh, book. And this is from the Kingdom and Politics chapter, which, oh gosh, I, I'm so sorry. I'm sure you really need to read it. Okay, here's my promise. If you read it and you want to process it, uh, go ahead uh, with me. You want to process it with me, read it, send me a message about it. But, but I, I must insist that you read it. But here's a quote that's really beautiful. It's, he says, Put simply, if you're more conservative or progressive than you are Christian, you're not actually a Christian. If you can quote Burke and Limbaugh, Marx and Bernie, these are you know different political thinkers, but struggle to locate the book of Malachi, you'll need to rethink your priorities. If you feel more commonality with a non-Christian who shares your politics than a Christian who disagrees with them, you have a problem. And if you hold politicians you oppose to a different standard other than those you support, then let's call it what it is, unjust hypocrisy. These are all signs that you've got more political purity than biblical fidelity. Ouch. Ouch. You know what hurts for me here is um, lately I've been more versed on political arguments than the books of the Bible and, and, and Bible verses. I realized, wait a minute, I, I'm running on stock knowledge on these things. I got to go deep with the word again. And not just, not because I'm not reading, but go even deeper. You know, if I'm putting that much effort with these thinkers, I got to put way more effort with God's word. The other part that hurts me is that sentence that if you feel more commonality with a non-Christian who shares your politics, who shares your sensibilities, 
who shares your whatever than a Christian who disagrees with them, you have a problem. This is not a statement against having friendships and commonalities with people who aren't believers. This is a statement for Christian unity and saying is the deepest and most fundamental and most important part of you your relationship with Jesus or not. We're Christian first. More than your political party, your NBA team, your favorite K-drama, more than your local church, you're Christian first. Remember who you are. Connected to this is remember your objective. Why are you talking? This helps me a lot. Every time I want to put a zinger online, I want to really like drop a burn on somebody. Or uh, You know what? Mm, what's my objective? What would that do? Now, if you're a social media personality and that's your calling from God, then you need to. You need to speak up. But that's not mine. And for most of you listening, it's not yours. <laughs> Remember who you are. Lastly, um, so reframe the conversation, redefine the terms of engagement. Refrain from negative engaging engagement. Remember who you are. And lastly, remain humble. Remain humble. This saves me the most, um, not to say I'm completely humble. Um, when I lose my temper, then you know that my pride and insecurity is <laughs> coming up again. But this saves me the most. I have to remind myself of a few things. I don't have the whole picture. I don't have the whole picture. There's a book called The Black Swan, which uh, I never really read, but the opening was fascinating to me, where he talks about anti-knowledge. Anti-knowledge. And he says, anti-knowledge is simply what you don't know. And he said, um, what you don't know will always be greater than what you know. It's just a fact of life. And the tricky thing for people who know a lot is we tend to forget that. Because we know so much, we think I must be getting somewhere. Maybe what I don't know is already less than what I know. <laughs> Not true. What you don't know will always be more than what you know. That's why having an offensive, um, divisive, self-sufficient, unreflexive stance isn't humble. You don't have the whole picture. You don't have perfect knowledge. You don't need to have the final say. You don't always need to make your point. It's okay to walk away and let other people have the, the last statement. What does that do? The goal is love. The goal is love. And see, this is important as leaders because leaders need to be free to act, to move, to think, to serve, to love, to give. And when we're forced between two difficult choices, we're not free. That's what our next episode is going to be about. Leaders being free. The leader is in some senses not free because they're serving. But in another sense, in another very real sense, the leader is the most free. We'll explore that idea next week. The leader is the most free to do what other people don't see possible to do. To respond in the way that other people think it's impossible to respond. That's who you are. That's who God made you to be. Many of you right now are stuck in hard positions. Should I forgive this person and they're going to walk all over me again? Should I give in to my parents or should I resist it? Whatever it is, you're free. 
to do what God called you to do. Avoid the false choices of the enemy and find the path that God has called you to. And if you get it wrong, that's fine. Cast that anxiety to God and try again. Remember, Christian leaders, that we are also under authority. Most of all, this is God's authority. And as we do that, I'm excited because we live in a world that's becoming more and more polarized in extremes. And I believe we as Christians can provide a new way of being community, of being a society, of having relationships and maintaining the tensions. So there. Please get a copy on Amazon of Adam Avery's book, Stop Taking Sides. Also, there is a website for his book. Just look it up, stoptakingsides.org. We're going to link it in the show notes. Um, Hope this was helpful for you. If you've got comments or feedback, please let me know. You can reach me on Instagram at at @campusjoe, and you can find the show notes at encleaders.ph. God bless you, and let's lead guided by the Spirit, not forced into decisions by other people. See you next time.